This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. If you love brewing as much as we do and are inspired by the work of leading commercial brewers like Mitch Steele of New Realm, Tommy Arthur of Lost Abbey, Matt Brindleson of Firestone Walker, Jeff Stuffings and Avery Swanson of Jester King, Jason Perkins of Allagash, and more, then put one of our 2018 Brewers Retreat events on your calendar. These luxury brewing events at gorgeous resort locations around the country pair great brewers, great food, and intimate camaraderie for a truly unique and unforgettable experience. Learn more at brewersretreat.com. And if you're interested in reaching the thousands of listeners who tune into every episode of the Craft Beer and Brewing podcast, we'd love to welcome you as a sponsor. For more information, drop an email to info at beerandbrewing.com and our media sales team will craft a plan that works for you. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner, co-founder and editor of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. And my guests today are James and Sarah Howitt of Black Project Spontaneous and Wild Ales. You may know Black Project from the three GABF medals they've won. You may know them from their number 32 spot on best breweries in the world on Untapped. You may have tasted some of their spontaneous beer made with significant amounts of fruit or brewed here and spontaneously fermented in their urban Denver, Colorado location. And if you haven't, you should get some as soon as you can. Welcome, James and Sarah, to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. Hi there. Hi. So tell me a little bit about the start of this brewery. Last time I was here was probably 2015, and it was a brewery under another name, Former Future, with a much more how should I say a common tap list? It was more in line with what other breweries typically launch with. You all have since that time made a pretty significant shift in moving the brewery in a completely different direction. Yeah. Um, so we started in, we opened former future in February, 2014. Um, and it was, yeah, I mean, that was our original model was just a, it was supposed to be like, sort of new interpretations of historical styles um, and as part of that we yeah we did not really a lot of sour beers we did IPAs and porters and stuff and we knew we wanted our sour beer program to be based on spontaneous fermentation and we did a kickstarter before we opened and we were going to get a cool ship right up front and a bunch of barrels and um, due to kind of switching the rules around at the last minute with the kickstarter we didn't fund it and um so we just sort of did it like uh, on a very small scale. We um, basically bought these two stock pots that were 120 gallons total and put those on the roof and used those as our cool ship. And we bought barrels here and there, like taking money out of the register to buy a barrel here or there. Um, luckily our brewing size is very small. So we do a, a four barrel turn basically. And so, you know, two barrels was, two oak barrels were great because that was one whole batch and it's not that expensive to fund that. Um, so we started brewing spontaneous stuff right around the time we were first opening former future the first one wasn't ready until august of that year so eight months later and when we went to like release that a lot of our staff um, didn't really know we had even been doing this and so we 
that's sort of where the name Black Project came from. Is it was this sort of like top secret thing in the back that I didn't even know if it was going to be working or be any good at all. And um, we just, there was no point in publicizing about us doing it because it might have sucked. And <laughs> there's no point until you, you can taste it. So, so we called it Black Project, and we entered that beer into JBF and won a medal. Um, and then from there, we started getting more brewing more and more of it, but um, brewing and having more and more of them ready. And so we were like trying to work up to bottle releases once a month, um, and it never really got to once a month, but got close. And then about, I guess it would be two years later, in August of 2016, we realized we got some more space next door and put a whole bunch of barrels in there that were full of beer. And we decided, uh, hey, if we stopped making these clean beers and like sort of stopped spending our efforts on making salted caramel porter, um, then we could have a Black Project tap room all the time. And so that's what we decided to do. So, yeah. What were your influences early on that made you say, let's make spontaneous beer? I think I can make something along those lines. What else were you drinking and what were you inspired by to make that giant leap? Yeah, I mean, the only beer I had really had that was spontaneous to that point was Goose and Lambic. Um, so, and I, I liked those beers a lot. <laughs> and that was um, something I wanted to try and do, sort of what they did and see how it would be here in Denver. And then also sort of taking the start of what they do and then what if you experiment out and do very different things in some ways than how they would do it, but still focused on that spontaneous fermentation. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I went to school for microbiology and it's kind of funny to like be this like micro nerd and then also take, take and like basically get rid of all control of the micro of your beer. <laughs> um, and so, but, but part of it for me is like being into, the, into microbiology is like making a beer with one strain of yeast is like being a, a rancher. Like you can know all about your breed of cattle, that one strain of yeast, and you have to know all how to manipulate it and whatever. Um, and we don't, in spontaneous fermentation, have that luxury because there's potentially hundreds or thousands of strains um, that are eventually maybe moving towards a, a lower number. But it's more like being like a rainforest ecologist and like, the, the bugs are truly in control and like we can manipulate it but for everything you do there's a there's a reaction in different populations of microbes and it's like it's just very complicated um and and there's a lot less control that you can exert on those populations so you're a microbiologist mm -hmm. you were also a, a school teacher and taught yeah. science before you launched a brewery yeah so i never worked as a microbiologist i just went to school for biology and focused on that um and yeah, I went to school to teach high school science, and that's what I did for five years um, before we opened the brewery. So I taught in Commerce City, Colorado, which is sort of a, if people are not from here, it's a, like a industrial-type town just immediately north of Denver. Um, you drive by it when you drive from the airport. <laughs> so There's a big soccer field out there. As, there is a big soccer field, yep, yeah. yep, and there's a dog food plant that you can smell. <laughs> Oof. Oof. A, lot, a lot of medical marijuana now, too, you can usually smell, so it's, yeah. So was the process then of getting into spontaneous beer and then letting the microbes do their thing uh, a freeing thing? Or uh, do you still find yourself uh, really wanting to dig in and find out what's happening within that fermentation process? Yeah, I don't really. No? I, I don't. Uh, I mean, a lot of people ask me, like, oh, have you ever, like, sent it to be tested to find out what strains these are? Have you ever, I don't know, 
done genomic testing or something. And I'm, I'm kind of interested to hear it, but it the process isn't going to change based on knowing that. So it's yeah. sort of a not really a great benefit to me other than just kind of would be cool to know. Um, I feel like you're, you want to know how different parts of the process affect the final product, but you're not so interested in like really you know, dialing down what specifically is happening. It's just more about how he can manipulate things. So hopping rates or, right. you know, adding, we did a beer where we added um, grapefruit peel directly to the cool ship. Just stuff like that where we kind of, he likes to play and. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, all those things are are affecting that microbial population. And I can have a pretty good guess of how, what different things might do, but it's always going to be, like a little bit less known because there's variability in what you're catching maybe mm-hmm. um, at different times of the year, different uh, nights even. And uh, yeah. What are the, what are the parameters that give you uh, some of the, your, your favorite results out of those? I mean, is there yeah. a temperature? I know the, the Belgian landry brewers certainly have very specific temperature ranges that they yeah. brew within. I know American brewers have found different ranges that work for their cultures. Um, and I think that that's you know something that you've talked about before. Mm-hmm. Pretty important that American brewers find their own way to to make this beer in, in, you know, in, in a way that speaks to the American terroir and American cultures, mm-hmm. uh, or where we are, not just American, the, the location of the place that we're in. Sure. Um, you know, what, what is it that works for you? I mean, that's not going to be applicable to everybody because it's different no matter where you are. But yeah. Um, so we are like lambic inspired beers, what we call spontaneous beers, or. Um, we brew those only when it's cold out, so there's, there's some variability in this because it's Colorado, so it's always like that week in February, it's like 70 degrees, and we don't necessarily stop brewing because of that, but um, we, I look for an overnight low that's around freezing-ish, um, below 40 Fahrenheit probably, um, and it's mostly just about cooling rate. I'm trying to replicate right. a Belgian cooling rate. Uh, our cool ship is really nice because it's, it's copper, so we can... It, it sheds heat really, really well. So we actually can, if it's very cold out, insulate it around the sides with wood um, so that that is a little bit stopped. But if it's hotter out, we can run it full open and uh, and the, the copper on the sides of it sheds a lot of heat compared to like stainless. Um, and then and, it's also... What is that cooling rate that you're shooting for? A certain uh, amount of time to, yeah, to like cool that wart down? Roughly like 12 to 16 hours. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's, it's longer. Sometimes it may be in the cool ship a little bit longer than that, but that's really the time it takes to get down to cellar temperature or room temperature, um, which our cellar in, in the wintertime is rarely above 65. It's usually about 60 degrees. Um, we don't, we have two electric heaters and that's it. And if you're opening the window all the time when it's freezing outside, it gets pretty cold. Yeah. Um, and so that's, but that's, that's part of our location. That's not, that would be required, but our barrels are in the cool ship room. And so the barrels, are seeing this daily temperature fluctuation as we're using the cool ship and that's part of i'm sure that affects the microbes and that's part of where we are and that's like part of the terroir essentially of of black project here so now did you do anything in your cool ship room i know a lot of lambic brewers will uh christen uh yeah. <laughs> their their cool ships to to you know maybe help their culture along on that i know you, you probably captured some of that in your culture before and initially brewed with with a captured culture before you started spontaneous or no so, so do you have you ever maintained a culture like that that you've then been able to 
to try to help along. Yeah, so we so we do like the spontaneous stuff, which is essentially all uh, lambic inspired, and then we have a bunch of um, Solera vessels. So they're 550 gallon stainless steel tanks. Those were started with lambic inspired spontaneous barrels, and then we don't empty them all the way. So some of them have been going for three years now. So we'll fill them, uh, got them full of wort. When the beer was ready, we'd package 25 to 50% and then just replace that with wort. And that wort now is cooled in the cool ship year round, um, but it's going into this vessel that has a lot of microbes already in it. So it's a little bit, it's, it's not what I would call spontaneous, but it's cool ship caught microbes. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's the one way we do it. I forget the question now. But, uh, <laughs> Well, that, that's a curious one. Now, how those? How does the spontaneous culture? And I know there's a lot of time between when you, you know, are, are uh, inoculating these beers or mm-hmm. when they're spontaneously inoculating and when you actually get to taste them. Mm-hmm. Um, but how how does that culture that you've captured, that's developed on its own, that you have maintained, yeah. differ sensory uh, ways from that spontaneous culture? Um, have you, uh, you know, is there additional variability in that spontaneous culture? Are there bigger highs and lows? You know, what what's the what do you perceive as that difference? Yeah, there's definitely different... Um, uh, there's a lot of the same threads. Like, there's definitely a lot of the same stuff that you can taste between the two. I think we always have this sort of, like, peach candy ring sort of flavor. And um, I think that's 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 definitely present in both of them. Yeah. Um, but the... I mean, the Solera vessels end up being a lot Peach more... Peach cons- candy ring. That's, yeah. that's your yeah, flavor like, descriptor. Yeah. It's... Uh, Sarah... I don't even like those candies, but Sarah <laughs> told me that's what it tastes like. And it's like... It's like a... It's a peachiness, but it's not like a like a ripe, real peach. It's a, like this... A component of what peach is, you know? Sort of sure. like... Just a banana runt isn't exactly what a banana tastes like, but right. it's, it's three quarters of a banana flavor. And it's kind <laughs> of like that. Not in a, It's not a bad thing, but it's just... It doesn't taste like a peach beer. It's just got some peachiness sure, to it. Sure, sure. Um, and so that that's present in both of them. Um, the Solera vessels tend to be like they they get ready, and then the, it doesn't require a lot of blending. Um, we get a lot of consistency out of those. Yeah, they, I mean, and the batch is still very batch to batch by a fair amount, but um, with the lambic inspired spontaneous stuff, the barrels, each barrel, even if they were filled from the same batch of the cool ship, each barrel eight months later ends up being pretty different um side by side you're like wow are these is even the same beer um and so that really is a lot more about blending like blending is super 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 important for how we make those beers um we want to balance and, out acidity and bitterness yep. and all of you know yeah all of that yeah oh i remember the question now <laughs> um so we we didn't spray anything in our room uh any beer other than the fact that we ferment in the same room which obviously is going to there's definitely a culture in the room, which I think is true of anybody using their cool ship, whether it's in a trailer or it's anywhere. I think when we started the first three years, our cool ship was on the roof, and I think that was probably a pretty good example of us getting away as much as we could from any kind of, like, the culture is also part of the room. Is th- There's nothing above those cool, sure. sh- those cool ship vessels but the sky. Um, but now it's, I mean, for sure, like, when you have barrels fermenting on the other side of the room, I'm sure that that's influencing the cool ship. And and I'm okay with that because the, those barrels are not mixed culture. They're they're from the cool ship itself, so it's it's okay to me. Um, we do have wood slats over the cool ship, um, and a lot of people think, oh, you put that wood there so you can spray it down. But we didn't. Um, 
the ceiling is just painted and so I thought I wasn't sure how it was going to go as far as like condensation and I was like I don't think it would be cool to have like condensation dripping off of like latex paint <laughs> back into the cool ship and it turns sure, out sure. nothing condenses and drips back at all but I felt like it'd be better for this to like drip off of raw oak than off of right <laughs> and like random electrical conduit and stuff so um, we just basically covered it up but we didn't spray it down with anything so um, yeah. Sure, Colorado is quite a bit drier of a climate mm-hmm. than uh, yeah. some of the traditional spots where. Uh, yeah, and I don't even know how much that. Even in Belgium, they're really getting like real condensation. And, yeah, like, um, it gets pretty steamy, but it's not like it's not that steamy. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so the neighborhood over the last few years has also continued to to change significantly. Has. Uh, uh, and there's an immense amount of construction, uh, new construction going yeah. up all around you down here in, uh, on Broadway. Uh, how has that influenced uh, flavor in any way? I don't think so. It's like I said, all the barrels are different, so it's really hard yeah. to say. Like, oh, now now the whole thing is different. Um, we um, what, the one real change we had that I think that I noticed was switching from the rooftop stockpots to the interior by the big window copper cool ship is and i'm not sure but i think this might be an actual a function chemically of the copper is uh we used to get really 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 bad dms blowing off during the initial fermentation like when we had spontaneous barrels going you would walk in the brewery and it was just like mm-hmm. straight like cream corn and like tomato juice yeah um is like it, and like funky versions of all of those um that's you know the first seven or eight days of fermentation it was just like really dms forward Pea soup yeah just sulfur <laughs> sulfur compound forward and and um so copper does a reasonable job of um, bonding and essentially removing sulfur compounds and so i don't know if part of that is that the copper is doing that or what it actually could be our cooling rate is no different but um we've got a lot less dms blowing off in the fermentation mm-hmm. um it never has made it to the finished beer either way because it always just blows sure. off and you're aging it so long and it's fermenting for so long. Um, but it's, it's not as noticeable. So it still smells really funky and weird when the fermentation is going on, but it's not cream corn anymore. So uh, for whatever that's worth. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think causes that barrel to barrel variation? If you're, you're loading this beer, that's all been, you know, coming out of the same cool ship. Yeah. It's all been exposed to the, you know, the same amount of oxygen, the mm-hmm. same amount of ambient, uh, you know, microbes. And they're going into steamed neutral barrels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're the microbiologist. What do you think? Uh, you know, could be causing some of that uh, that long term difference between these. Yeah. So this is kind of. I mean, I have sort of a. I don't want to call it a beef, but a disagreement with a lot of um, people who are interested in studying these beers. Maybe not as much as people who are interested in making them, but um, a lot of people say that the oak has an influence, and it's it's microbes in the oak um, that are responsible for making these beers and. I've done quite a few tests that to me, I mean, these are not published in a journal or whatever, but um, to me kind of show that. So we've done, if you'd like to publish them, just, just let me know. I know a guy. (laughs) Um, I don't want to write that much. um, (laughs) So, I mean, we did, we did some tests like, you know, autoclaved glass and we took, uh, we took um, directly from the cool ship on the roof and put some of that wort um, the next morning into autoclaved glass without ever bringing it in the brewery or touching Oak. And the high croissant on that flask was within a few hours of the high croissant in the barrels from the same night. So, I mean, some, I mean, I've had people say, you actually can't do spontaneous fermentation without having oak. I don't think that's true. I saw it happen in glass. And honestly, a year later, that beer tasted within the same range of variation of the oak. Um, 
and so that little flask of beer and so to me it isn't necessarily variation in the barrels themselves um we don't have what's called a horny tank so we don't mix um yeah it's a, it's a fun name for it but um <laughs> Uh, so a lot of breweries in Belgium will empty the cool ship and they're usually larger than ours so they'll empty the cool ship put it in this big tank and it sort of mixes everything together and then they from there fill the barrels right and we don't do that so it's conceivable that you know the microbes are more on the top of the liquid or or maybe on the bottom but I would guess the top um, and so maybe the first barrels you fill we empty it from the bottom so maybe those first ones have a have a lower or different level of microbial activity. inoculation rate and activity yeah um, than the ones that got it from the top, but um, I think even more so is that what part of what makes spontaneous fermentation spontaneous and so special is that the pitching rate, so to speak, is just tremendously low, just really, really, really low. And it's like you know, you, you can you couldn't find microbes under a microscope in this <laughs> in the morning. Like it's not like that at all. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, even to get it to plate out, like. It's, it's probably better to concentrate it than and then plate that. I mean, there's microbes in it, obviously, and I'm not suggesting it's truly magic, but it's really, really low. And so the lower that rate is with a truly wild mix of strains, with a super low rate, you go into different barrels, you can end up with a difference in microbes just between barrels, even if you were to mix it all together. Sure. Um, just because there's so few cells. And then for some reason there's two or three more of one cell type in or maybe not literally two or three but right. in one barrel and thus they can dominate and for some reason the you know ratio is not quite the same in, in the next barrel um and so i think that's actually a big part of the variation i have a question about that okay um sorry yeah <laughs> welcome to the sarah <laughs> podcast <laughs> um so would temperature variation from like top to bottom also affect microbes and how yeah. they grow okay yeah but i don't think we have that in our room I wouldn't say much, but there might be a few could be. degrees. Could be, yeah. Could be, and I mean, different different barrels. A lot of our barrels are the same type, but we do have some, you know, American oak, and um, just some of them have, you know, we have a couple that have internal staves, and so there's there's different levels of oxygen and stuff coming in into the barrel, which is also going to affect what microbes grow. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it could be temperature variation also, and um, the ones that maybe are closer to the window getting getting colder more frequently. And then the ones maybe in the back of the room can maintain their temperature a little better. And that could that could be it also, but I haven't really noticed like a gradation mm-hmm. top to bottom or like front to back in the room. It's just it's really truly much more random. Mm-hmm. So, what's yeah. your typical time frame? Like, how long does it you know from from that uh, moment of of cool ship uh, inoculation on to uh, producing a beer that you're happy with that uh, you know that's attenuated as far as you you wanted to and uh, that you know that you're you're, you're comfortable releasing um, sure. you know after all that microbial activity takes place. What's that time frame for you? Um, so we, we fill the barrels. Usually we'll see like what we call active fermentation, which is really going on all the time. It's just at a certain point you reach a critical mass and it looks like active fermentation to a person looking at it. Um, so in other words, croissant coming out of the barrel. Right. Um, that usually happens on the fourth day, sometimes a little earlier. But um, yeah, around the fourth day, it has occasionally taken as long as like six or seven days. Um, I think that's more of a function of temperature than like microbial variation. It's just if it's real cold, it's going to take longer. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, so that's four or seven days, and then that sort of winds down by another week or two later. It's then the beer just is, seems to be sitting there. Um, 
it does not taste good, but it's got most <laughs> of its attenuation really like I mean okay. probably not not it's not fully attenuated, but it's got it's beer. I mean to taste sure. it you're like this is beer. It's not sour, but it's got alcohol and it's the pH has dropped to beer levels and um, that's when it's actually like to me safe to drink. I don't really drink it before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I don't really drink it at that phase either because it doesn't taste good and it's not really a point. But um, yeah, then a few months later, you, I mean, really, it's over the next two or three months to start to develop and you can sort of see how maybe it's going to happen. Um, and then the first really time it matters to taste the beer is uh, at about six months old, which is um, at that point, it, doesn't, it still doesn't have acidity to it and it's not fully attenuated. Um, but it's starting to get a little bit more bread component going. This tends to be like in the springtime for us, basically. Like if we brew it in the fall, it's now in the spring. Um, so we actually like, we make a beer called Roswell, which is all single year old uh, Lambic inspired beer, but we purposefully take it and fruit it very heavily. And so we actually take it at that time of year before the acidity comes around mm. um, because we're adding so much fruit. We want to like have not that sour of beer to put a bunch of fruit in. Um, and so the refermentation on a bunch of fruit tends to even at the attenuation issues and uh, sort of lock in the beer. Um, but most of the beer ends up staying then in the barrel over the summer and at 10 to 12 months old, at the youngest it would be eight months old or something at this point, uh, then it starts to have acidity. And it could be that our barrel cellar gets quite a bit warmer in the summer. We don't have heat, but we also don't have air conditioning. And so we have a little swamp cooler <laughs> and, uh, you know, we try and keep it below, probably below 82 or three, but I mean, it's, it's right around 78 or 80 most of the, most of the summer. And, um, so that's when I think the acidity comes about both just by time and also because the temperature helps the bacterial action. And that's when we start to make like our three year blends and our like spontaneous fruited blends, um, other than Roswell, the more traditional type stuff. And those are actually even our spontaneous fruit blends are, are a blend of one two and three years um and so you know to be quite frank like not a ton happens between 12 months old beer and 24 <laughs> months old beer and 36 months old beer yeah um definitely like more acidity some more complexity but like they're not you, you can tell the difference maybe but it's not like mind-blowingly different like um and honestly a lot of the three-year stuff by itself i don't think I would want to sell because the acidity tends to go up and the flavors tend to get pretty extreme. Yeah. Um, we're using at this time, pretty much all smaller format stuff. So all standard wine barrels, 60 gallon wine barrels. Um, I think if we started to have larger vessels that were three years old, it might be less extreme flavors. Um, but yeah, so then, then it just, it comes down to blending at about that year point, um, taking from deciding what is, what's ready to be blended and what is going to be best to go into the blend now because it's probably not going to get better over the next two years and then the stuff where you're like wow this is really good now but i can tell like with more time this is going to be superb for next year's blend of the year after that blends blend um yeah so you know i know these are hard things to to quantify but i'm always curious what is it from a sensory perspective for you as a brewer that would lead you to make that decision. This is going to get better if I let it go for a year, or this is something I need to use now, or this one in particular could be a fantastic component with a few others mm-hmm. in this kind of way. Um, from a sensory perspective, you know, do you do you have ways of defining these things um, and categorizing them so that they're they're this or this or this one's going this way? And what kind of language do you use 
you know, within even within your own head to you know describe some of this to yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's mostly just thinking about like what what the compound is that I'm tasting. So each of these barrels on their own is not usually something that I would sell. Um, I don't. We don't really do a, very much at all single barrel. Like this is one barrel and it's like so good we're selling it. Like it's it's almost always blended, and so thinking about what is it that makes this barrel good or bad you know if it's starting to if it's still got quite a bit of bitterness i mean our we do a couple of different lambic inspired bases uh, some as low as like 15 ibus and some as high as 35 ibus and um you know some of those higher ibu ones still can have a, a fair amount of actual bitterness um from the hops that fades and so that's not you don't want too much of that and so if it's got good bitterness but it's not getting um kind of fusily or, or acetic at all um, then we probably would leave that uh, sometimes we'll get barrels that are like pretty buttery and I know it's like some good PDO action sometimes it's almost I've never seen a really really like 100% ropey where it's like snot um, PDO caucus can do that um, but there's definitely some where it's got a real like viscousness to it that for as dry of a beer it is it's like very very creamy <laughs> um and uh like like it's like an oatmeal stout on your on your palate or something and this that's bizarre for a beer that's you know a zero play-doh almost sometimes and um so those i give more time because i think first of all you probably don't want to put that with the rest of the beer but also like those are signs that this could be better um if i start to get kind of like more perfumey um aromas or palate like things like i call it like off bug spray <laughs> um that I try to that's something that I think in small amounts actually is really it sounds weird but like <laughs> in small amounts like it's really good and it's not something that's going to continue to develop in the bottle yeah because um, it's oxygen based it's about Brett and oxygen and maybe acetobacter acting and making acetic acid and these other kind of weird um, compounds and so those we try to use if we're going to use them if, obviously if it's really bad and it's like straight you know gross we just those we dump that we dump 20% of the beer that goes through the cool ship wow um, of these beers so that's yeah <laughs> um, that's always kind of surprising when people are like oh we want to start a spontaneous program hey do you ever have to dump it and I'm like yeah 20% and they're like oh uh, and you can just see like the dollar signs like rolling by in the back of their head like dang okay uh, and I'm like yeah you know also we have sometimes 20% evaporation so in the cool ship we're, we're losing you know 30% of what actually comes out of the kettle never sees a bottle and a lot of it's just lost to the air of course that's Colorado where it's super dry but um yeah. For a brewery that's producing about 250 barrels, that's right. Um, right. a massive yeah. percentage. We're brewing a lot more than that, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. And I mean, and, and also, like, you know, we have, you know, a goal maybe of being at 1,000 barrels in a couple of years. And that's maybe close to our end point. But um, you have to brew, like, now to be able to be right. able to do that. Like, right. to be able to do a three-year blend and be producing at that level three years from now like we need to be brewing a lot of beer this year you know and um so that's kind of our goal now is just like get as much into inventory as we can like yeah. keep the tanks full get all the barrels full we're hoping like we were just talking with ed our production manager yesterday or the, the day before and um talking about sort of our lambic inspired cool we call it cool ship season and he's like i think we can just i think we can fill all of our barrels before the end of the year so we're going to start in like the next couple of weeks and like we're just going to bust it and like try and get done before January 1. Um, and then, you know, it's like, okay, at that point, then if we can do that, then I can start shopping for empty vessels to start 
brewery more in in the spring and then that's a, that's a kind of a way to grow but if you're not filling them all then there's no point in buying more casks at this point so yeah and we don't have any room for those things mm-hmm. but if we can fill them all and we're standing around waiting like oh crap we could brew more we'll, like we'll find a way we've always found a way to fit more oak somewhere so mm-hmm. yeah it's an interesting rhythm to the brewing process that's uh you know since your focus is and since you are making only spontaneous beer or you know primarily spontaneous beer um yeah. you're only then brewing through those colder times and you're not brewing you've got a brew house here that you're not putting anything through yeah i mean we so we do the solera top-ups in the summer we do okay. those year-round um but i mean honestly we're moving towards uh, all of our growth is coming from the lambic inspired spontaneous stuff and i mean if i uh, we actually just kind of talked about this morning like if we could really have enough brewing in production we could probably brew only in the winter wow and that was sort of be my goal was like just brew when it's cold because the right. solera vessels i don't think care as much about the temperature um but we have to top them up but if we brewed enough that we could get stuff in packaging get stuff aging only in the winter that would be really cool and then the rest of the year would just be blending and packaging hmm. um which is like for sure the way lambda brewers do it they don't brew right. all in the summer um some of them have some side ventures where they do other kinds of beers but um yeah it would be it would be really cool <laughs> um we'll see so a little bit earlier you mentioned using hops to control some of the microbial activity. Mm-hmm. You know, um, what kind of parameters do you play within? Do you age your own hops? Do you buy aged hops? Um, are you using fresh hops or sorry, not fresh hops, but uh, uh, you know, typical unaged dried hops? Um, you know, what yeah. are, how do you use those hops to control the activity of that culture? Yeah, um, so we are doing in-house aging of hops now. Um, and have been for a while. We've also had to buy bales of aged leaf hops that are quite old, and um, you know we're looking for them to test. We're usually using noble-ish type hops, although I'm, I'm willing to experiment with some more American-style hops. Um, we have some like Chinook aging and stuff like that. Um, Willamette, which is not far off from maybe noble hops, but um, so we're aging those. And right now, most of our stuff is being is using this. Uh, it's like 2000 four or something brambling cross and it's just nasty like tons of seeds in it and um it was stored warm you know we, we had it tested for uh alpha acid and it's you know various samples all below 0.5 you know hmm. 0.3 alpha acid probably was a six percent alpha acid hop when it was fresh um and then i also also like i've gone a couple years now to the um yakima chief hop union hop and brew school to talk but i always learn a lot when i go there and so there's the hop stability index like the hsi that a lot of people look at when they get their homebrew hops and you can plug that in and figure out how the alpha acid degrades and so for aged hops it's a it's hsi when you test it can actually be a measure of how well or how poorly the hops have been treated and so i saw this talk this year where um, I forget who it was, but it was, a, it was a Belgian brewery that doesn't make Lambic, and they were talking about um, how they reject hops when they come in. If, the, if they're going to be aroma hops, they said the HSI has to be below uh, 0. 0.4, um, 0.4 HSI, because that shows that from field to package, the hops have been really treated well. And uh, so she mentioned, uh, I asked her later about Lambic hops and, and aged hops, and she's like, oh, yeah, we've tested some of those. And she's like, they're over one like 1.0 and like you know we have our uh, the ones we're using now we tested and they're like you know 1.47 or something so they're like 
it's just far and away like the hops have been abused and I, you have to essentially that's what aging hops is um, and so I'm starting to look at like using HSI also as a measure of like when we when the hops are aged enough you know mm. if, if they're only testing at 0.6 like those are just bad hops they're not yet aged hops they're just you know um they're not really good for anything at that point yeah like, so we have a lot of those hops sitting around where it's like well i can't use these as chinooks anymore but they're not quite aged yet yeah um and so that's cool um and and yeah we're controlling those microbes we're just using a traditional ibu level that's in lambic um it's a it's a range but it's certainly not zero and um i think that's one thing that's different between Lambic producers in Belgium and people making most people making spontaneous ale in the United States that are emulating that, which is pretty much what's going on. Um, we're not making zero IBU sour beer, and there's a tremendous amount of zero or like two IBU sour beer. Yeah, and uh, so people are like, "Oh, how do you, you know, how do you get sour beer when you're putting 20 IBUs in there?" And it's like, "Well, it's because we give it a year." <laughs> um, and people think, I, I honestly kind of blame some of the initial thoughts people had about aged hops of oh well there's no alpha acid so there's not going to be any ibus so sour beers shouldn't have any ibus and um it's it's bitterness from a different source but my feeling is that it still has a, a very similar sort of microbial action so i don't think lactobacillus is really part of our souring process hmm. um it's, it's pediococcus over um, longer periods of time which pedio is much more resistant to hops than lacto um and and yeah it's uh it's interesting figuring out how many IBUs you're going to get when you just have this bale of old hops um, and you can test the alpha acid and that doesn't give you the true picture so if we're sitting at 0.3 alpha acid we'd have to put in a, like just an absolute ton of hops <laughs> to, and we put in a lot of hops but we'd have to put in a ton to get yeah. 30 IBUs out of it and um, like a like an impractical amount of, <laughs> of leaf hop um, but it turns out it I, whenever we get a new lot I basically send the first batch I put a mid-range known amount of those hops into a beer and send it off. And anybody can do this. It's 30 bucks to get an IBU test on your beer mm -hmm. then. So I, I send it off and say, okay, well, what was the IBU out of the kettle on that beer? And then I can go and essentially make like a virtual alpha acid that you can plug into a Tensith or a Ranger, like a uh, Rager, like um, formula and, and figure out what your IBUs sort of are. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's kind of how we do it to be able to hit that range. Um, yeah. And some of the preservative qualities in hops are not connected to that alpha acid alone. Um, right. You know, there are other compounds that... Uh, it's true. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think... So So alpha acids are are um, largely responsible for... They inhibited, like, the like proton pump action of a lot of bacteria. Um, and what we normally talk about is alpha acid... Isomerized alpha acids because non-isomerized alpha acids don't dissolve very well in beer so it's difficult to get that inhibition without boiling the hops but it turns out when you age the hops they oxidize and oxidized alpha acids do dissolve in beer and most likely have the same sort of right. proton pump uh, shutdown effect on bacteria to an extent so like, like like isomerized alpha acids so sure yeah IBU is a poor shorthand that we use to describe a yeah. much more complex process. So. Yeah, you're really just looking at how how a spectrophotometer sees yeah. chemicals, but it's a good measure, I think. And um, if you're using the same kind of hops, if you're trying to emulate lambic and you're using the same type of hops that are aged the same amount of time, and you're 
beer is testing in the same IBUs as them, it's safe to say you're doing the same thing. Um, and there's a lot of people who are like, oh, you could just totally, well, just what if you did 30 IBUs from non-age tops? And like, we've experimented with that. It's, it's different, um, hmm. not drastically different, but like age tops have a certain characteristic that makes Goose Lambic taste the way it does. Like, um, even though we boil them for four hours sometimes, like there's still this like funky, cheesy grassiness that like before we were using aged leaf hops, I feel like our beers were less goozy, so to speak. Um, <laughs> and and now, like as we've been using them more and more, our three-year blend I think has been moving more and more towards um, tasting more like the real thing in Belgium. Um, we used to use aged pellets. I don't think you can age pellets adequately. I mean, there's people probably using it, and uh, that's fine. But I don't think you can age them like you can leaves. So, how important is it for you as a brewer to get something that tastes like? Belgian goose and lambic versus coming up with something that just tastes, you know, like, like your own terroir. Oh, sure. uh, you know, I know that's, that's yeah. certainly a, a philosophical and an aesthetic yeah. uh, challenge that brewers in America face. Yeah. And I mean, that, that's something that we, we play with that. So like we have a beer, we haven't released it yet, but we have a beer called, um, Lunex. We have released that. So Lunex is a, is actually our three year blend, um, with, with, uh, coffee beans. That's a totally different thing. Um, we took uh, a whole bunch of Neo-Mexicanus wet hops this year and essentially packed um, whiskey barrels full of these hops and then filled it with spontaneous, uh, one-year-old spontaneous beer. And it is, like, delightful. Like, it's one of my favorite beers we've made. Mm. And, you know, that, that probably doesn't have really, like, any sort of, like, goozy character because it's, it's overwhelmed by this, like, great Neo-Mexicanus uh, wet hop flavor. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, like if we're trying to replicate that, I think you can still have terroir, but like, it's just a drastic difference between not having aged tops, not having that, that characteristic, there's nothing wrong with not having it, but if like our goal is to emulate this, which for a lot of our beers, it is, or some of our beers, it is, then that's something that should be there. And then the, the terroir and the difference of what we have here is still part of that, that that hop character is, is probably different, you know, and if, if we're using aged Colorado-grown Willamette hops, it's going to have that aged hop characteristic, but it's going to be different than someone in Europe using Saz aged hops, um, and, and so that's a large part of why I want to experiment more with Colorado leaf hops and aging those. It's a little difficult to get Colorado hops in the kind sure. of quantity we need. We actually use a fair amount of, like, hops in a small batch of beer, um, so multiple pounds <laughs> I think with the you know with the method traditional um, stuff that was going on I think there was this idea that somehow we although it wasn't you know just us that but this this movement would somehow prohibit people from being experimental and would somehow like stifle creativity and I mean our tagline kind of internal tagline is research and development in spontaneous fermentation we're mm-hmm. not trying all the time to emulate those beers but this was just a way a, a, a framework for that style of beer i think we should probably back up and, and <laughs> give give folks who may not be up on that a little bit of background uh, uh i guess it was last year uh, a, a group of spontaneous brewers proposed the uh, designation of method goose to describe 
uh, beer brewed with that, uh, uh, you know, in that goose tradition, uh, spontaneously, you know, fermented beer with a specific, uh, you know, grist component, uh, mm-hmm. you know, cooled in a specific way, you know, in, you know, inoculated only spontaneously, put into clean barrels, you know, so there wasn't a persistent culture, um, and a whole set of, of uh, you know, laundry list of, uh, you know, parameters for mm-hmm. that beer. Um, they had some pushback from Horal, the uh, group of traditional Lambic brewers in Belgium, mm-hmm. who uh, did not like using the term goose, even when it was referenced as uh, a, yeah. a, the method of goose. Um, and so, uh, you know, earlier this year, they were uh, changed the language around that from method goose to method traditionnel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there certainly been some brewers that uh, have opposed the idea of even creating that mark. Uh, yeah. But I think the the um, the overall uh, you know condition that you have to you know look at from uh, in the way that it developed was based on a good one. There are still American brewers and respected American brewers who continue to use names, nomenclature like Lambic and Goose on their beer Mm -hmm. in a way that is infuriating Mm -hmm. to those Belgian Lambic and Goose producers uh, who don't want those American brewers to be using those terms and not simply saying Lambic inspired or Lambic style, but actually referring to the beer as lambic for sure um you yeah. know and so the the whole idea of method goose was to come up with a terminology that allows american brewers to differentiate what it is they're doing without stepping on the toes of those belgian brewers of course it didn't quite work out that way um, and now we're in a, a different kind of language around that and so that's yeah. that's where we are for those folks that wanted to, to catch up on that mm-hmm. yeah and i mean i um i think method goose was was mostly uh, mostly a product from Jester King, and there was also, to be fair, like the idea was there would also be method lambic. So, goose being the three-year blend of unfruited beer, and then lambic being essentially the same process, but without the aging component. Just it is the beer made this way, and it doesn't matter how old it is or what you do to it. And so, um, that eventually ended up being becoming method traditionnel and method traditionnel three-year blend. So there's two crests essentially, which are the certification marks. Um, and I, I think, I still think, but I'll, I'll caveat that, but I think Method Goose is a great name. And from my perspective, it, I still am not, I still do not necessarily agree with the idea that it's the same as calling beer Goose um, because it just means in the method of. It means like, I made this like they make Goose, but it's in two words instead of that. Uh, but ultimately, Goose is not my word to not be offended by so you know if I was in Haral then it might be a different story and maybe I could convince them that this is okay but you know there's language things and I think that they saw a lot of interest around that and I think you know rightfully so wanted to protect that and I, you know I hear consistently people saying oh well you know they make back sweetened lambic soda stuff um, and call it you know frambois or whatever and it's not what a lot of beer nerds are into um but that's theirs to do with what they want and it's to me it's like this is their name and and i think um jeff stuffings from jester king and i talked so we actually went to belgium and met with horal he and i and um kind of we're we're riding the train back to brussels and i said you know ultimately i think you made method goose to be respectful of these guys and 
you and I probably don't agree with their logic that Methoguz is not an okay name. But if you made it to be respectful and they feel disrespected by it, you might as well just call it Goose. Like they literally said, like, you might as well just call it Goose. Method doesn't, doesn't have any effect on us. So we're equally upset by either one. It was like, if, you, if you're okay with disrespecting <laughs> them, you might as well just call it Goose or yeah. American Goose or whatever, which honestly, I would be okay. Again, it's not my term, but I would call it American Goose. I would, be, I would think that would be okay, you know, um, but certainly would not be for them. So it's not my term to decide. Um, and, you know, this, yeah. this debate is not one that only exists within spontaneous beer. Oh, sure. I mean, you can look at, uh, you know, Kolsch, for example. Sure. You know, the city of Cologne has, and those brewers haven't uh, seemed to yep. uh, made a major case against brewers around the world brewing Kolsch-style ales or calling sure. them Kolsches. Yeah. You know. yeah. um, but the whole tradition and history of beer, uh, nomenclature and the names we give those beers do tend to be tied to some degree to the sure. place where they're from. Yeah. Um, and that becomes a style, and that mm-hmm. style becomes you know bigger than a, a protected term or an appellation in that sense. Right, uh, right. You know, it's not wine; it is a, it is a style. Yeah. So I think I think something kind of key that, at least from my perspective, I don't think that, and maybe Jeff would disagree with this, but I don't think the method used, and I really don't think that method traditionnel is is intended to be a style. And I think a lot of people are missing that point. Because um, they're like, well, method traditional, that could be traditional. You can make a method traditional Kolsch. I mean, yeah, it just means you make it in a traditional sense. So obviously you can do anything in a traditional sense. You can make a traditional method folk song or a traditional method cheese or a traditional method, you know, whatever. Um, I'm going to start using that yeah. on the magazine. We make this magazine <laughs> yeah. or the traditional, traditional method. method printed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. However that is. Um, and, and so to me, it's never, never was, was I thinking, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to call this beer a method traditional. It's not to me. It's not a method traditional. It's it's a three-year spontaneous blend, and because we make it in a certain way, that bottle will bear the MT3 crest, saying this is a three-year spontaneous blend, and it's it, the, the brewer agrees that they're making this in the traditional way, because you've got people saying three-year spontaneous blend and they're making it who knows what they're pitching east in their cool ship and it, they're not I mean, wrong by even calling looking it that. At the guidelines for GABF, I mean, they still call it belt, you know. Lambic and goose. Right. They call it be- like yeah, Belgian pitch, style lambic. You or can something. pitch your bugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can call it lambic. There's like, nothing. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. But if people are seeking out something that's really a little more based in spontaneous fermentation and in a replication of the traditional process, that's kind of what the, the idea is. It's supposed to be a mark showing that. It's almost like, you know, what does Trappist mean? And there's Trappist. People say Trappist style ale, but Orval is a Trappist brewery. And West Vlederen is a Trappist brewery, and Westy 12 and Arval are not the same beer at all. And so to say it's a Trappist beer, that doesn't that doesn't tell you what the beer is. It's a it's a certification of who made it and how they made it, and a lot of stuff about that. And this is I think supposed to be more like that. So you, yeah, Trappist sounds more like a independent craft beer seal rather <laughs> than a, a style. Yeah. It is yeah. more about the. The ownership and, and uh, organization sure. of the company behind it, and right. not uh, not necessarily a product. For sure, yeah, and I think, um, and I think that to me, MT is more about the production method than a, than a style in its in of itself. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, and I mean, we have people who work for us who, you know, we, I looked on our menu one day and it said "method traditionnel with coffee," and I was like, <laughs> like. <laughs> That's not how I want to use it, you right? Know? Right. Um, so we have these like little letterboard signs, like old school, like 
I don't know what they're called, but like the little letters fit in the little slots. And so we're gonna like 3D print an MT, an MT version that can like of the of the crest that can go in there. So we can say spontaneous blend with coffee or spontaneous ale, and then the ones that are MT we can have that there. But it's not the style of the beer to me, right? Um, because it doesn't make sense. It's, well, it's traditional what that doesn't tell you anything about the beer. Um, but having the crest says if you understand what that crest means. You say, oh, this is a three-year Cool Strip blend, and I know they made it following this set of rules. And so that's that's the idea. But your goal as a brewer is not to brew only that style or only through that method. Your, no. your goal is to mix some beers that way, that uh, yeah. where that fits, and yeah. uh, and to you know follow your research and development into whatever channels it might take you. Yeah, totally. It's I mean, most of the beer we make isn't going to have the crest. Um, and, and honestly, like, I, I, it's interesting to hear people say that it stifles creativity because it's like you can make one batch a year of this or you can make no batches. But if you're going to use it, it's not like it's not like we're saying, like, are you going to be an MT brewery or not an MT brewery? And like you have to make it all that way or not all that way. Like, I don't think anybody's going to do all that way. Um, and even within that, like, there's a lot of creativity where MT itself says, you know, it can't be extracts or concentrates for fruit but it can be any fruit i mean you can put pineapple in there if you want or like you know so i mean it's you can put any amount of fruit in so it can be very different than a traditional beer in that respect there's still a lot of creativity it's just about how you brew the wort um and mostly i think about showing that you're not taking um some would say that this is that the whole idea is is taking trying to take cachet from the Belgian brewers, but I think that it's maybe more designed as a way of saying, you know, if, if, if any credence is, is coming from the fact that this is made in the Belgian way, at least you know it really is made in a general sense how they make their beer versus, you know, somebody making their Blackberry Lambic and it's a two-week-old beer, you know, and it's just not Lambic in any sense of the word. Um, which I've seen, you know. Um, so as I saw a bottle of Eau de Goose, which is a very protective term in Belgium, and um, not even all the Lambic brewers make Eau de Goose. It has to be essentially very traditional, um, aged, and, and not the sweet Lambic type stuff. And, um, you know, as a, I saw a brewery in America making Eau de Goose, and I'm like, Jesus, like, that's... You couldn't even... If you were in Europe, it would be illegal to call it that. Right. And, um, whereas... Goose and Lambic are less protected in Europe because of the sweet Lambics. If you could probably justify a lot of different methods as, as being called that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really just about having a transparency in how beers are made. And it's not about a value proposition or, like, no one's going to charge more just because they put the crest on there. Um, that's not the idea. Our most expensive beers, I can probably tell you, are not going to be beers with the crest. Like, obviously, when you have three years of, of beer in a blend it's gonna it, there's a lot of costs associated with that but we do other beers that you know like kind of like these wine beers we spend a tremendous amount of money and effort on getting grapes and processing grapes and these are not empty beers at all and like those beers also have to be expensive because of what goes into all that processing and the amount of fruit we have to buy it's not it's not a way to say these are the best beers we make or this is the upper echelon it's just a way to say transparently here's how we made it and i don't have the effort for it but if somebody wanted to say oh this is a way to certify a, a wine grape hybrid beer and, and if there was some controversy about that or people were doing it in a weird way or being 
unclear about how they made it, I would be happy to say, okay, let's agree on some ways that we could do this, and if we put this crest on there, then people know. I mean, it could get a little out of hand, but, um, yeah. How many logos do we need to put on bottles before yeah, they all true. look like NASCAR that's, that's, cars? That's right, that's right, for sure. I mean, and, and that's just, that's part of it, I think, but... Um, there's an educational component yeah. to this, especially as these beers become more popular, as more breweries are going to start making them. I mean, they're really the idea was to give consumers a, a vision into what's going on kind of behind the curtain, you know? Yeah, it's really about transparency and not about excluding people or whatever. We're just, it's, a, it's a simple way, instead of saying, hey, we brewed this, 60% Pilsner malt and 40% unmalted wheat and it's aged hops and it's roughly 20 IBUs and it's uh, in a cool ship we didn't pitch any bugs and went into clean barrels and it's a blend of one, two, and three years it's this age and da 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 like all this stuff instead of having to say all that <laughs> sure. you have a crest and people who are right. into knowing what those different things even mean hopefully will say ah, I know if it has the crest then these people certified that they meet all that list of things and they don't have to say it all in the bottle and it's not to say that because you don't do those things, it's not as good. It's not about that at all. It's just a way of being transparent. It's not to say that if you follow those things, the beer's good either. It doesn't mean know. it's going to be good right. at all. I mean, it, you know, it, it very well could not be good. And I've had I've had Lambic-style beers from that followed the requirements from both sides of the pond that sometimes were not very tasty. And so it's not about that. It's just right. um, it's a transparency method and a shortening of a very involved process because it's a process that is very different from how other beers are made and very um odd honestly <laughs> sure, like you sure. know so yeah so you talk we talked about terroir a little bit with hops but one of the other ways that you work to bring terroir into your beer is using fruit um sourcing fruit whether it's grapes or other fruit from uh fruit growers here in colorado mm-hmm. uh, working closely uh you know adding um finding new ways to add very very significant amounts of those of those fruits to your beers mm-hmm. um give me a little background on on what took you down that fruit beer pathway and uh what uh, what gets you excited about experimenting with it yeah i mean people like fruit beers um, <laughs> why is that why, why have fruit beers captured uh, beer fans imagination so much over the last two years uh, i mean they just i think fruits go a lot of fruit goes really well with the acidity in beer. I, I mean, I guess that's probably it. People also just like fruit. Um, I mean, to be quite honest, like most of my favorite beers we made are not fruited. Um, and not that I don't like our fruited beers, but I tend to like really like fermentation character, unadulterated, and like. Um, so, but I'm also a brewer, and I, <laughs> a lot of brewers are also probably that way. I think. Sure, people, sure. I was know, gonna they, say you do sound like a brewer when yeah, you say that. Yeah. Oh, I just want to drink pilsner. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I do just want to drink pilsner. Yeah, yes. um, yeah. If I if I could have two styles of beer, it'd be pilsner and goose, and I would be set. I don't yeah. need fruit and any of that. Um, but you know, people like it a lot, and and they can be really good and really like mind blowingly great with like just so much fruit flavor, and um, and it is a fun way also to connect to the land and connect to the to the area. We use a fair amount of local malt. Um, like I said, we're moving towards using more local hops um, once they age. Um, and then fruit's just a, an easy way to do that also. Well, tell me a little bit about your fruit process. Um, you know, I, I know you've, you know, with your Roswell series of beers, you've been pushing pushing the boundaries, or at least you're, that's what your press releases say. Sure, sure. Uh, and how, how fruit is added to beer. Yeah. Um, what, what are some of the processes that you've, uh, you know, developed to help, um, you know, to produce better uh, tasting sure. and more compelling 
beers with fruit. So, yeah, so, I mean, we're very transparent about this, but Roswell, because of when we have to make it, which is early in the spring, when before the beer gets that acidity, Roswell is 100% fruit, fruit, whole fruit puree. It's not Colorado fruit because there's no Colorado fruit available when we have to make the beer. Um, it's also very difficult to get that amount of fruit in a beer unless you puree the fruit, um, which is something I would look into, but we don't have a giant warehouse of cold storing fruit from the year before, and we pretty much have to use all the fruit and more that we can get. So Roswell is, is puree. Um, to me, it's interesting. It's an interesting beer because of the, of the beer, the base beer itself, um, and the, the fruit puree is a, is a re-fermentation and a flavoring um, in that way. Um, it's not part of the terroir necessarily, <laughs> um, but uh, so we do like we do we do wine grape beers. We did we've done it for three years now. Um, this year we brought in what six thousand pounds six thousand pounds of red grapes. Uh, we crushed and destemmed them in house. We let them did a pretty extended maceration on a lot of them, um, punching down every day and letting them um, soak on the skins. And then did a free run to get a little lower acidity and tannin extraction. Um, also because we don't have a press that's worth a damn. So we do a free run and it's a little wasteful, but we get 60-ish gallons per thousand pounds um, of essentially grape juice or, you know, sort of like wine. Um, and then we take that and then blend it, that juice, with um, beer out of the cool ship. So... Um, the beer ferments with microbes that it caught in the cool ship and also with microbes that are naturally present on the grape skins, which are not, skins are not there anymore, but they're still in the juice. Um, and so, like, you know, so grape juice wasn't a thing until, like, pretty recently in history because if you crush grapes, it becomes wine right. on its own. And so um, so we're using essentially that's that sort of method of kind of a fruit spontaneous fermentation um, and that's a different way than we do it for most beers. Um, norm- normally, so that's that's essentially wort going into uh, grape juice, and it ferments. They kind of co-ferment. Normally, what we do, so we be, we do a beer called Cygnus, which is a three-year spontaneous blend. Um, we did that this year with cherries and apricots and I think Italian plums, uh, and maybe we'll do raspberries also. But. Um, so let me step yeah. back there. Okay, so yeah. with this with this wine grape mm-hmm. beer, mm-hmm. you are putting in freshly you know, freshly you know spontaneously cooled wort mm-hmm. into barrels with this you know grape just juice, not skins. Right, right. And you know because that beer is early and it's in its own process. Uh, it's picking up some of the culture from that grape juice because yeah, probably know, a lot of we it. know bacteria you yeah. know, and, and, yeah. and uh, wild yeasts do exist on on this. You know, yeah, there's probably grapes. more yeast in the grape juice than there is in, from the cool ship. Like grapes have quite a bit of yeast compared to sure, what sure. we're catching from the air. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, those beers are made from from the, uh, the the yeast that was on the grapes. Um, different kind of spontaneous fermentation, essentially. Um, yeah, and, I, and it's interesting. So we do Super Cruise, which is essentially 25% juice by volume, and then we do Mock Limit, which is 49% juice by volume. Um, Mock Limit is uh, intentionally still in the bottle uh, with someone tr- trying to basically be like a like a red wine, um, and Super Cruise is, is more like a grapey sour beer. 
So, Can yeah. we talk about our beer to champagne? Yeah, we also did a beer to champagne, which we haven't released yet, and Sarah's been fired up about <laughs> it for like a year. Um, but we basically, we did a, um, I, not a winemaker, but we, we took Barbera grapes uh, from our friends at Red Fox on the Western Slope, and they crushed them and then immediately ran the juice off so there wasn't really any color extraction from the skin a lot of people and i certainly didn't know this when we started like red grapes don't make red juice if it's not on the skin uh, it's barely red um so we yeah gathered that from them and uh we fermented it with that half that and half um spontaneous wort almost essentially like a mock limit but mock has always been a, a red grape uh, and then the, the kind of real interesting thing was we um, bottled that at about six volumes, which is about double what we normally do and is getting close to champagne can sometimes be over eight volumes, but um, high, <laughs> um, yeah. but not, not so high that we were going to freak out about them all blowing up. And so we then will riddle those and disgorge them in a traditional sort of champagne method and have a, a product that does has, is high carb but doesn't have any lees in the bottle. Um, to emulate so, champagne. Yeah, so mm-hmm. to emulate the champagne method of, of disgorgement. Um, that's, that beer's going to be called Javelin, and it will probably be ready later. <laughs> you can have it in time for uh, for New Year's? Uh, no. 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 That's for sure not going <laughs> to Next happen. New Year's. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, we, I mean, a lot of these beers, it's, like, it's partially like we don't have the space or the like ability to do that yet. We just got a riddling rack from Red Fox, so we're going to start that, but we're looking... You know, hopefully November two, we're gonna move into a like packaging facility where we'll be able to store and package beer and just random stuff that's taking up space. And so we'll probably be doing that there because we have to move too much stuff around, and you can't really move the riddling rack once you've started on this process and you're collecting the yeast down in the neck of the bottle. If you have to move that rack, you have to start over. Basically, mm-hmm. it seems like so <laughs> we just don't have a space to put it where we know we yeah. don't have to move it. Um, and honestly, more time on the lees and more time in the bottle is just great for uh, great for champagne. It's also great for our beer. So, um, yeah. So that's that. Yeah. About great varieties, you know, you mentioned you're not a winemaker, but uh, you've certainly found, you know, and I imagine you've used a, a range of different grapes. So, yeah. you know, what what are some of the different characteristics that your know, different grape varieties provide for some of your beers? Yeah, I mean, I was um, I'm really excited most probably about. I think it was Cab Franc this year that just like, just like berry jammy and like, I'm not, I'm certainly not like sommelier, but it just, that one sitting, just smelling and tasting that maceration was, was my favorite. (laughs) Um, I think Colorado does Cab Franc really well. So that we did Cab Franc last year as well. And the grower that we got all our grapes from this year is Colteris, and they um, they have some of, I, as far as I remember, they have some of the oldest vines in the on the Western Slope. I could be wrong about that, but. They grow great stuff. Yeah. I mean, so we, yeah, Cab, Cab Franc and Cab Sauve were good last year. So this year we did Cab Franc, Cab Sauve, Petit Verdot, which are apparently closely related. And then we also did Merlot and Malbec, which is new for us. Um, the Merlot is great. We got quite a bit of that, 2,000 pounds of that. Um, just really, like, just stereotypical red wine to me. Like, good tannin, but, like, nice acidity. And um, and uh, the Malbec was, like, just chocolatey and, like, just amazingly, like, 
almost in a bizarre way you're just like whoa that's like cocoa like and uh nicely fruity also so it's like cherry hot chocolate almost when you like just taste it it wasn't hot but yeah um i don't know sure these are my favorite beers so yeah. i'm so excited <laughs> yeah so yeah we're doing a bunch of them this year why are they why are they your favorite beers what is it about the character of that and, and i think this is an interesting this is why uh you know we're, we're writing about this intersection of grapes and beer yeah. that it seems like you know in in particular we're, we're watching things move from that raspberry cherry realm um and watching a lot of beer makers and across the spectrum i mean everything from trillium brewing uh, dialed in uh, double ipa with uh with grape wow, uh, wine grape awesome. juice yeah. to uh the brewery brewing vindictive a black mm-hmm. tuesday uh mm-hmm. you know beer with uh you know grenache grape uh added to uh to this big imperial barrel aged stout um you know so across the spectrum of styles not just sour beer we're seeing a lot of brewers really really being attracted to grapes um, then, you know, so just raise that curiosity. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is it about that specific flavor that's so exciting to people? I don't know what I like. I don't. That's a great, great question. I don't. I don't know why I like these beers so much. Probably because it's like having your cake and eating it too. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you get your beer and your wine in yeah, one. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, they are familiar. They are yeah. comforting for those of us who also drink wine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like having a sparkly wine. A little funky wine. Um, yeah, it, it works. And honestly, I mean, I think that winemakers don't talk about this so much. But, um, I mean, having like... You're going to get hate mail. When I've, no, I mean, <laughs> I some of them know. But I think when you have some really good uh, red wines, especially I get good ones. I get flavors that I recognize from sour beer. And I think that... There's been some studies that show that pretendomyces probably plays a lot larger role in fine red wines, especially that then people talk about. I think it's um, it's there, and I mean you can sulfite your wine if you want, and it's not a natural wine or whatever. But like it's got time in the cask. The sulfite doesn't work forever, and your wine yeast peters out, and Brett is always there. And it's not it's not a boiled product. Like it's it's not a sanitary product going into the barrel. Um, no matter what they do, it's still a plant, <laughs> and like Britannomyces is part of it, and so and that makes it great. And I I think that you know, there's definitely some winemakers who would be like, oh, there's no Brett in my wine, and maybe that's true. But uh, I mean, I've seen studies that show some really really great Bordeaux and, and stuff that are not Brett wines by any <laughs> means, but they are a little bit. And, and, yeah. You know, One thing that really struck me last year. So last year we did uh, Cab Franc and Cab Sauv, and maybe now I could I haven't done this but I think in the past when I would order one of those at a restaurant I don't know that I could really tell the difference between the two mm-hmm. but the two beers that we did the same beer um, Super Cruise with Cab Franc and Cab Sauv tasted completely different tasted completely different and they started with the same base and so the flavors that came out of both of those um, yeah they were just so distinctive oh. yeah it's interesting being able to have it side by side and last year those were from two different growers so some 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 component of that um but yeah i mean it's a great fruit people like what grapes taste like so i don't know it's, um it's very profound yeah i mean i know a lot more people that eat grapes and eat cherries on the regular not that the grapes you get in the grocery store taste like wine grapes at all but to an extent they do um 
So and so you then with your with your different beers add grapes in different ways. Not everything is is co fermented. Uh, you know with the, the the you know culture off of those grapes. You do yeah. uh, some post fermentation additions as well. What do those look like for you? We uh, we d- we don't. Oh, you don't. On the wine grapes, we don't. With, no. With okay. other fruited beers, we, we do, do kind of the opposite. So we do a beer called Reheat, where we take Mock Limit, which is the fifty percent grape juice beer, and we leave the lees and fruit in the belly of the barrel. And um, so there's maybe two or three gallons in the belly of the barrel, and we put fresh wort into that and let that re-ferment. It's just got just a kiss of grape from that, and and the cultures that were already present in the barrel. It's the only beer we do that way. And um, so that's that's kind of like a second use on grape, but we don't have any, there's no grape material in the barrel. Mm-hmm. So it's not like when we do second use on fruit, you know. Um, yeah, but we don't, we've never, never actually done a like finished beer plus grapes. Okay. Um, it's always been juice and it's always been using the cultures and the juice combined with cool ship cultures. So, and admittedly part of that was probably because the first year what we got was juice uh, from the winery and and um, it worked great and that was how it had to be done because yeah. we didn't even know how to process and then it was like oh crap now we want to get more and these guys are not willing to process thousands and thousands of pounds for us so we have to do it ourselves and um, that's been a fun process though like learning about that and like I've been reading a ton about how to what an extended maceration does and like when you would do it and how do you how much do you want to press and all these things like um, fun stuff so yeah you mentioned second use fruit and that's another trend that seems to be uh, taking off especially mm-hmm. in the sour beer world mm-hmm. or the wild and sour beer world um, you know some of the my favorite fruit beers that I've had this year were, were beers that were aged on second second use fruit mm-hmm. um, and it's not only an efficient way for you to get more from all of the work that you do processing that fruit yeah. uh, you know but it also you know, kind of knocks down some of the more intense flavors in that fruit. Um, what do you, what do you get out of those beers that you make? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of it. We've done a few beers on tap. I don't think we've done any beers in bottles that are second use only. Um, kind of an interesting way we're, we're using second use this year is, um, so our cherry sickness, which is a three year spontaneous blend. It's on cherries and, whole cherries we we don't take the pits out it's, everything's in there um so we did a, a, a extreme amount of fruit so we did about 400 pounds in a 120 gallon punch and we did three punches and um there's not a lot of beer room left when you've got 400 pounds of cherries in a 100 gallon vessel so we get you know 60 70 gallons of beer out of that that's pretty extremely cherry forward and then thus far this is how a lot of creek is made in belgium um, and then they would they would normally blend in base lambic to get it down to the normal level of cherry that they want. And we decided this year, instead of doing that, we're going to do um, a pull from the first use, which is extremely cherry forward. Then we're going to actually do a second use on it and blend that back with the first use, to, like so, sort of like double cherry. And then we'll see where we're at there. And then we may bend, blend in more to get it down to a lower level. But um, we're essentially using the fruit twice. Um, but within the same beer, which I, I hmm. I've never actually heard of anybody doing that, but it doesn't mean they haven't. Um, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that's been that's been kind of cool. It was a, a, like an amazing amount of refermentation on the second use. Um, huh. Like we had one that was just going for two weeks. Like all during JBF was just spitting beer all over the place, <laughs> um, trying to keep that clean in the barrel room because everybody's coming through. And I was like, yeah, sorry, this is pink 
liquid sticky all over this thing is just going like nuts um, so so obviously there's a lot more to be had and a lot more color like it, it's not nearly as deep red as the first use but there's more color and um, I think it'll be interesting if we can extend our volume that way a little bit but also I think there's a lot of interesting flavors to be had from the second use that you wouldn't get if you just did a large amount in first use and blended back with base beer uh, and then I wonder why that is do you think it like breaks down some yeah. component of the fruit to like release different flavors oh, sure. or, I yeah. don't know yeah and I think biotransformation is a big deal. So um, you're getting, and the winemakers actually know about this. They may not call it that, but you know, um, certain yeast and bacteria can take components in fruit and actually in hops also, and they can partially metabolize them in such a way that uh, flavor and aroma compounds are released that would not normally have been present. So um, like in hop compounds, there's, there's some aroma and flavor compounds that are bound to a carbohydrate and you don't taste them because of that. They're not aromatic because they've got this big heavy sugar essentially bound onto them. Um, they're called glycosides. And uh, so some yeasts have an enzyme called beta-glucosidase which can break down and then eat that sugar and then this aroma compound is released. And it's sometimes an aroma compound that you would not otherwise get from those hops, for example. And I think the same thing sort of happens with beer, both on that biochemical level and also just on the yeast is making fruity flavors while fermenting fruit. And so that fruit flavor is amplified. Um, I, I'm not sure why that would be, but just, just almost just from a, from a sensory perspective, sure, um, a fermentation on fruit can sometimes make it be fruitier. I mean, I definitely see that with you know, macerating slash fermenting grapes. Um, they get they can get intensely jammy um, just as they start to ferment um, and the, the flavor and aroma of it, it just goes through the roof and it's like that sh- how does this taste more strong than it did just as a as a as a cher- as a grape by itself or a cherry by itself um, so yeah I don't know I don't know really what it is but um, I'm excited for that and then you've also got, you know, for example, more pits are exposed after it's been fermented once and then racked down. So you're getting more of that almondy um, sort of flavor, um, maybe, uh, also. So yeah. yeah. Where do you guys see yourself in one year, and what's the five-year plan for Black Project? Yeah, jeez. You know, it's like a it's like a board meeting up in here right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, the plan hopefully is by this time next year to be. Um, starting build out on another facility somewhere outside the city um, at least so that, looking for yeah yeah really ideally we'd have another facility that would be for production and, and could hit us to our end goal like I said a thousand barrels 1500 barrels a year I think that that's a doable thing um, and that would be a thousand or 1500 barrels of almost all lambic inspired stuff so we would be sort of all that growth would be in those styles of beers, not in Soleras. We're not going to start more Solera type projects. Um, so those would sort of fade away as we can meet more production with Lambic style beer. Maybe that means brewing only in the winter and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's right now we're just trying to like, we're just drowning in empty bottles and like all the stuff it takes to run a packaging brewery. We don't have that kind of room here. And it's at this point, like we're literally inhibited in our production by the amount of crap that's around and we don't have space for aging bottles for example so all of our 
spontaneous stuff needs to go into bottles and needs to be in bottles for at least four months. And so we don't have any place to put that amount of bottles because this is a years of production of, of these beers, basically. We need to have many, many crates of bottles just sitting there aging on their sides and that room doesn't exist here. So we're basically waiting for um, November 1 so we can move in and start doing that there. Um, and yeah, I mean, in goal being 1,000, 1,500 barrels, that means a lot of oak and there's not enough room for that here and it doesn't really make sense to do that in a super urban slash what I really mean is expensive setting, <laughs> you know. Sure, um, sure. Because, it, it, I mean, the barrels don't care if they're on Broadway where there's a lot of foot traffic. Like, it doesn't really matter. Right. Um, uh, but it's expensive per square foot. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately... You want to serve beer where yeah. the people are. Yeah, and we're going to... But gonna, uh, making beer can... Exactly. Can, yeah. But Taproom's going to be here for another five, six years at least. Um, that's how long our lease is for more. <laughs> like, we'll, we'll renew our lease and, and uh, be here for another five years at least. But... Um, during that time, we'll definitely have built out a more production-centric space and more of a destination-type place that'll be outside of town, but, um, you know, just, I don't know, I don't want to say more farmhousey, but kind of more um, just a standalone type thing and uh, uh, just a big building full of barrels. And ideally, we'd have a, a bigger brew house there also. As and we're tiny doing. goats. <laughs> and what? Tiny goats. Tiny goats. Sarah also wants to have goats, so she can't keep a plant alive for more than three weeks. But <laughs> we're gonna do this with animals, apparently. Uh, our dogs are still alive, and they our, are. our cat, yeah. brewery cat, at Otter the Brewery Cat on Instagram. Uh, <laughs> um, no, uh, yeah. So that's the kind of the plan is that um, facility there. I don't know. Our kind of goal is maybe by next year to be doing it. It'd be nice to be able to start having barrels there for next cool ship season. But we're not rushing into it as far as. We want to find the right place because it's going to be kind of the quote-unquote forever home. Um, uh, especially with leasing in Denver, it's always up in the air. I mean, I'm look, we're in a very old building here, and I'm looking like one block one way and one block the other way, and there's what used to be very old buildings are now holes in the ground slash new buildings going up, and I'm thinking, uh, I don't know how long the landlord's going to want to be a landlord here, and at some point somebody's going to make an offer and say, I want to put an eight-story apartment building there, and it might be something you can't refuse. And obviously we would have time to move out and all this stuff, but like, I don't know when that would happen, but I mean, I don't know if this is a 20 year facility. Sure. I don't know if he would commit to that. He certainly probably wouldn't commit to, <laughs> to that. So, um, and I don't know if we could afford it in, in 10 years. Like that's part of the thing too, is rent is only getting more expensive in Denver and you can only fit so many people in a tap room. So yeah. yeah. People want to learn more about black project. Where do they find you? Uh, blackprojectbeer.com and at blackprojectbeer on Instagram and at blackprojectbeer on Facebook and we have a Twitter also but I don't know I don't know don't, what the handle is because I don't that. tweet yeah it's like at blackprojectco I think because blackprojectbeer was too long uh, yeah but Facebook and Facebook and the website fantastic well thank you for joining me once again this is the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast I want to thank James and Sarah from Black Project thank you all yeah thanks thank for having you. us And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. If you enjoy the magazine, uh, subscribe at beerandbrewing.com. Awesome. Thank you. If you love brewing as much as we do and are inspired by the work of leading commercial brewers like Mitch Steele of New Realm, Tommy Arthur of Lost Abbey, Matt Brindleson of Firestone Walker, Jeff Stuffings and Avery Swanson of Jester King, 
Jason Perkins of Allagash, and more, then put one of our 2018 Brewers Retreat events on your calendar. These luxury brewing events at gorgeous resort locations around the country pair great brewers, great food, and intimate camaraderie for a truly unique and unforgettable experience. Learn more at brewersretreat.com. And if you're interested in reaching the thousands of listeners who tune into every episode of the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast, we'd love to welcome you as a sponsor. For more information, drop an email to info at beerandbrewing.com and our media sales team will craft a plan that works for you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.